Well, good morning, church family. <clears throat> so very thankful that you're here this morning. As we begin, I, uh, would you agree with me this morning that the words that we use matter, right? Words that we choose to use to describe something uh, can have an impact on the way we think about it, the way we communicate with one another, and can reveal even what we think about the thing we're describing. I was thinking about words, and we often use different words to mean the same thing depending on where we're from, okay? So show of hands, so I want you to raise your hand, it looks like this. I know Baptists don't do this. Look, nobody's going to think you're Pentecostal. All right, we're going we're gonna to raise our hand, okay? How many of you grew up calling any sweetened carbonated drink a Coke? If you're from the South, that's you, all right? How many a pop? All right. Everybody look around. That's where the Northerners are. Okay. How many of you, when you go to the grocery store, you get a shopping cart? How many of you get a buggy? That's what I thought. All right. How many of you grew up having supper? And how many grew up having dinner? Okay, all right. Listen, some words are better than others, okay? I'm always going to be, make sure you put some Coke in your buggy for supper, okay? And Brittany knows that means to bring home Dr. Pepper. It's not confusing at all, right? This is, this is simple stuff. But, you know, I was thinking about words and, and words that matter. And, and in church, we often refer to ourselves as Christians, which is a, a biblical word. But, you know, that's not the first word used to describe the followers of Christ in Scripture. Uh, before the church was known as Christians, they were known as disciples. Listen, I love the word Christian. It means little Christ. Uh, and even though it started as a, a term of of malcontent. They were making fun of these people for trying to be like little Christ. We embrace the term and we are proud to be called Christians. But I think from time to time we need to contemplate what a disciple is and what a disciple does if we are going to be faithful Christians. Obviously, we can learn a lot about what it means to be a disciple by looking at the disciples that we find in Scripture. This morning, specifically, I want us to look in at the calling of two disciples and what we can learn about being a disciple from their encounter with Jesus. And so uh, last week we said we were going to kind of be a lot in Mark, but this week we're going to step away from Mark for a Sunday and, and look at the Gospel of John. I said last week, Mark moves quickly from event to event, right? Mark is all about the action of Jesus. And one of the things he over, skips over or looks over is the calling of two of the apostles or disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. And so he mentions them in the group of apostles, but he kind of skips over their calling. So we're going to go over to John 1 at verse 43 uh, and look in at this calling of Philip and Nathaniel. And so as we look at their calling this morning, I want to share with you just three simple statements concerning a disciple of Jesus that we find from this calling of Philip and Nathaniel. So if you have your Bibles open, it's John 1.43. The first statement this morning is, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. I'm taking notes, uh, that is the first kind of statement we're going to look at this morning. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And so let's pick up in John and read verse 43 together. 1.43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Let's stop there for a minute. Now, this is the call to Philip. Now, I think it's interesting to find uh, that this is the first of the disciples that Jesus intentionally goes and finds. 
Uh, when we, if we were to work ourselves back from to the other disciples, John the Baptist is the one who pointed Andrew and John to Jesus, and they follow him, and each likely went and found his brother. James brought John, or by John, and Andrew brought Peter into contact with Jesus. And so, but Jesus seems to seek out Philip. He goes to Galilee and he finds Philip and he says to him, follow me. And this is what I want us to understand. Regardless of how these various men encountered Jesus, his call to them was the same. Follow me. It's a really simple statement, isn't it? Follow me. I mean, it's recorded for us as a, a much more than a statement. In the Greek, it's an imperative. It's a what we call a command. Jesus says, hey, you follow me. But it's still a pretty simple command. So what is it that he's commanding these men to do? And the word follow here in the Greek means to accompany someone. It comes from a combination of two words, one meaning union and one meaning road. We might say this, journey with me in the way that I am going. It's similar to what we may or may not holler at our kids in the store when we say, come on, right? It's the same idea. Come on, I'm going this way and you better join me, right? Or when we tell somebody, hey, it's time to go, right? The, the idea is, come on, stop what you're doing and follow me. Now, it's important to know that this word is in and of itself not spiritual. We often talk about in the church following Jesus, and we mean spiritually. But this word that we get this phrase from is not only spiritual. It's used in the New Testament in a very generic way. Uh, Jesus is said to have followed Jarius, who came to him asking for healing for his daughter. The crowds are said to have followed Jesus. Now, we know Jesus is not spiritually following Jarius, and we know that many in the crowds who physically followed him would not follow him spiritually. But this word means to, to follow after someone. When we go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find this word used to describe Elisha following after Elijah after he put his mantle on him. And we find it, speaking of Ruth, clinging to her mother-in-law instead of going home, neither of which necessarily describes a spiritual following, but rather a physical one. So Jesus calls them to follow him. In every instance where we have recorded of Jesus calling a disciple, this is the language, follow me. But, but for those of us who know the story, right, who knows where Jesus is going to lead these people, who knows the result of, of their calling, we know that he is not calling them merely to follow him geographically, right? Like, we know that. We understand that Jesus is not just calling people to physically follow him in the general sense only, but he's calling him to himself disciples in the method of the Jewish rabbi-disciple relationship of the day. Rabbis would call people, invite people to physically follow them in order to spiritually follow them. So he's inviting these men into this relationship with himself. And this is evident in not only the language, but as we will see in a moment, the scriptures themselves. For a moment, let's look at the language. This follow me, this imperative, this command that Jesus gives is in the present active tense, which implies an ongoing action. Jesus essentially says, stop what you're doing and follow me from now on, right? Keep following me. 
and keep following me and keep following me. It's, the, it's a present active imperative or command. As, and it also immediately understood when we read the, the context. It, right after this calling of Philip and Nathaniel, we find this in John 2, 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Well, who are his disciples? At this point, at least from Scripture, we can discern that uh, it is uh, Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, Nathaniel, and maybe James. But these are men whom he had invited to follow him and are now called his disciples. And they're invited alongside him to what seems like a wedding of someone who is either family or a close family friend because his mother is there, right? So right after this, follow me, physically follow me, but then they're called his disciples, right? Those that are following him in a rabbi-disciple relationship. So the invitation to follow him was an invitation to become a disciple, which at the very least is someone who follows another. This rabbi-disciple relationship, this model that the Jews used was one where a disciple physically followed a rabbi so that he could learn from him, so that he could be taught by him, and so that eventually he would be like him. This was the idea that you they would follow physically and spend time with them so that they would become like them. They would learn from them. And so a disciple in the plainest sense then is someone who learns from another by following them. It's easy enough, right? So if a disciple is a follower and we cannot physically follow Jesus, can we be a disciple of Jesus? It's a fair question, isn't it? If we can't follow Jesus, we can't sit and and eat with him and have him teach us on the shores of Galilee, can we be a disciple? Listen, Jesus thought so. Because after walking and discipling these men and having them follow him physically for three years, he gave them this commission before he left them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." To these 11 men, he says, you have followed me as a disciple. Now I want you to go make other disciples. How? By bringing them into the faith, described here as baptizing them in the triune name of God, teaching them to observe. Parenthetically, that means being a disciple is not about learning, but observing, that is changing your actions. All that I have commanded you, which would certainly include, don't you think, the command to make disciples. So Jesus says, make disciples who would then make other disciples who would make other disciples who would make other disciples who would make, is that other disciples, right? Did you get it? Other disciples, right? This was the plan. So who is a disciple of Jesus? Someone who follows Jesus to learn from him and become like him, even if they cannot physically follow him on earth. So how were the disciples going to make disciples? This is huge. By connecting them to Jesus through his words, actions, and commands. They would follow Jesus as he was revealed to them by his disciples. Go tell them everything that I taught you, everything that I showed you, everything that I did, and that way they will know me and know what I expect, and they can follow me just as you 
do, right? This is the plan. Having no firsthand experience and knowledge of Jesus themselves, these second generation disciples would obey what Christ had commanded through his first generation disciples, who would then make a third generation of disciples who obey what Christ had commanded and so forth. And listen, if it would have stayed like this, the model would have been when someone wanted to accept the call to follow Jesus, they would have to spend significant time with someone who had been discipled by a disciple who would pass on what Jesus did and said to them, this was an oral translation. So you would have to spend years with someone learning everything that Jesus did and said. And so then you would make another disciple. But part of what these disciples did by inspiration of the Holy Spirit was transition from oral instruction to written instruction. Matthew wrote down his experiences with Jesus. John sat down and wrote his experiences of Jesus and what Jesus taught. Mark, most likely hearing Peter's preaching, wrote down what Peter had experienced with Jesus. Luke then carefully gathers church history and accounts and puts them down for future generations. So how do we so radically disconnected from these first century Jewish disciples learn from them in order to obey all that Christ has commanded them and be disciples ourselves? We read what they wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of what Christ did and preached and taught and was. God ensured that no disciple would ever be without what we needed to be disciples of Jesus in the church of Christ and God. Amen? He provided for disciples what they need to know Jesus and to obey everything that he commanded. We now have all we need to know all that Jesus commanded and taught that is necessary for our discipleship to be followers of the way. So a disciple is a follower And we learn how to follow Jesus by being in his word. First, we see Jesus' call to a disciple is to become a follower. Second, we see in Philip's response that a disciple is excited to share the news of Jesus. Look at verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So so Jesus found Philip and, and called him to follow him. Now, we don't know whether they had any previous interaction. Uh, we don't know anything about it, but we know there are two things we can know for sure by what he does and what he says to Nathaniel. One, he believes that they have found the one promised in the Old Testament the coming Messiah, the promised prophet, and the foretold king, and that his name is Jesus. He believes that. The second is, he is excited enough about that reality that he leaves Jesus to go and find Nathanael in order to tell him. Philip seeks out Nathanael because he is excited about what he has found, or actually in reality, as we know, who has found him, right? So Jesus finds Philip. Philip is so excited about this experience that he goes and finds Nathaniel. And we understand this, don't we? Like, when we are genuinely excited about something, we want to share it with others. Like, when we're, we're watching a game the night before and it was, it was a close one, we cannot wait to, to talk about it. We, we text about it. We go online and post about it. Or, or we wait to bring it up first thing in the morning. Did you see that game last night? Like, it's the first thing we talk about because we're excited about it. Or when we're really excited about an upcoming game, maybe we invite people over because we want to experience it together, right? 
So, so this, this, we understand sharing this. When, look, we're coming out of, as Brenda said this morning, we're coming out of the Christmas season where many of us exchange gifts and our kids are excited about their gifts, right? They can't wait to get back to school to wear that shirt, to carry that bag, right? To show off what they, that thing they got, whatever it is. Adults were the same way, if we're honest, right? When we get something new, we can't wait to share it because we're excited about it. Parents, you know, when our kids do something great, we're excited to brag about them and tell everyone about it, right? From the very simple things, like their first words to their first steps, to their first signs of independence, like tying their own shoelaces or riding their bike without training wheels, to the big things, right? When they win a championship game, when they get accepted to the College of the Dreams, their engagement, their first child, right? We are excited. We share these things because we are genuinely excited about them. Then doesn't it follow that when we encounter Jesus, who is the best gift in the entire world, when he finds us and we come to realize who he is, what he has done for us, and what he gives to those he finds, shouldn't we be excited to share the news with everyone around us? That's what we find in Scripture. Again and again, those people that encounter Jesus are so excited that they go share him. It's so interesting to me that in this text, John mentions Philip in relation to Andrew and Peter. Because before Philip found Nathaniel, Andrew went and found Peter. First John 40, one of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. First thing Andrew did of being pointed to the the Messiah by John the Baptist was go and find his brother. And we're all familiar with the story of the woman at the well, right? When she realizes who she's talking to, she runs to town and tells everyone about her encounter with Jesus. Have you ever thought about how Jesus attracted such large crowds during his ministry? Over and over again, we hear about these huge crowds of over 10,000 people following Jesus with no social media, no campaigning, no billboards, no radio spots, right? It was word of mouth, people telling people, about what they had seen and heard and experienced. I want to share just a few scriptures that will suffice for this. Matthew 4, he's going throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and the Bible says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Like People talked about what they'd experienced and what they'd seen. They were so excited to share it that others began to come. In Matthew 9, uh, two blind men, their eyes are open, and Jesus says, listen, don't tell anyone about it, but they go away and spread his fame throughout all the district. I was blind, but this man opened my eyes. In Matthew 14, Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist, and he withdraws by a boat to a desolate place, but the crowds hear about it, and they follow him on foot from the towns. How did they hear about it? People telling people about Jesus. Matthew 14, 34, they cross over and they come to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized them, listen, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. People who encountered Jesus in the Bible were excited to share Jesus with other people, period. Come to the one who teaches with authority. 
Come to the one who has power over sickness and demons and death and the nature. Come to one who receives not only the infirm, but takes time to bless little children. Come to him who is unlike anyone you have ever encountered. This was the message, the excitement. It amazes me that men and women who claim to have personal knowledge of and experience with this same Jesus and his restoring power often do not share their experiences with those around them. To our shame, we work with men and women every day that do not know we are disciples of Christ. We interact with men and women at the grocery store, at the bank, at the ball field, at the gym that would not call us disciples of Jesus because we have never shared our experience with Jesus with them. Because we are more excited about the football game than we are about following Jesus. Because we are more excited to brag about a promotion or a gift than we are the Savior who redeemed us from death and sin and the grave. Do we believe that he is the one? As Philip says, whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, do we believe that this Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him? If we do, and if we are followers of this, if we are disciples, should we be excited enough about him to share him with those around us? Shouldn't we be seeking out our Nathaniels and our Simons? What we see in Scripture again and again is that a disciple is excited to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with others. They're just excited about it. It's not drudgery. It's not a, a, a checklist. It's, they're just excited that they know Jesus, and they've met Jesus, and they want other people to be able to meet Jesus. You say, Pastor, that's... There's so much negativity surrounding Jesus. There's so much opposition to him. I don't, I, I, I don't know how to share him or I don't know if I'll be accepted. And listen, I agree with all of those statements, but fortunately for us, the person Philip sought out shows us how to handle opposition. In our next statement, we're going to see a disciple is not deterred by opposition. Let's pick up with the story. So Jesus finds Philip calls him to become a disciple, to follow him. He goes and finds Nathanael, tells him they have found the Messiah, the one that is spoken of, and this is what Nathanael says. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so let's deal with Nathanael's statement and then look at Philip's answer a little closer and then hopefully find encouragement in Jesus' own words to Nathanael. So Philip goes and finds Nathanael in his excitement about encountering Jesus. And Nathanael's answer is a little bit jarring, isn't it? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Philip just announces that they found the Messiah, and, and Nathaniel goes, I don't think he did. Right, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, there's a, there are two possible understandings of what Nathaniel says here. One, as a Jewish man, a student of scriptures, he has a hard time believing that God's anointed would come from a region like Nazareth. This would have been in line with the thoughts about Jesus that the others had uh, in his day. For instance, we read of two such accounts in John's gospel. Uh, the people are talking about Jesus being the Christ, and someone says, but is the Christ to come from Galilee? Doesn't he come from Bethlehem, the city of David, right? And then in John 7, uh, 
Nicodemus, uh, they're in the council of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus speaks up about judging Jesus before they try him, and they, they essentially respond to him, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Like God's not going to do anything from this unimportant, uh, Gentile-corrupted area. God's not, that's not where the Messiah is going to come from. No prophet comes out of Galilee. So that's one way we can understand what Nathaniel's saying here. But, but the other way is later we learn that Nathaniel himself was from Cana in Galilee, a region not far from Nazareth. And so perhaps it was his own knowledge of the people he had grown up with that caused him to doubt that God would bring his anointed out from among them. This would have been very similar to what Jesus experienced in his own hometown. They stumbled at who he was because they said, is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph, uh, Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. So either way, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what I wanted you to see is opposition to the good news of Jesus takes many forms, doesn't it? People oppose it because they don't believe the Bible is true. They cannot fathom that the creator of the universe would use men to record his truth which isn't too different from Nathaniel not believing that God would use someone from Nazareth as his Messiah. Or people oppose it because they don't believe that Jesus is anything other than a historical figure, right? Which isn't too different from the crowd struggling that Jesus, being a man they knew, could be more than a man. People oppose it because they don't want to believe it. Because it means that they're not okay. It means that they are hopelessly lost apart from Christ, that they need something beyond themselves to experience life and redemption and reconciliation to God. It means exposing who they are in light of who God is. You need to understand this one thing as disciples who make disciples. Pride is at the root of much of the opposition you will face in sharing the good news of Jesus. It's pride. It was pride in Nathaniel's voice. It was pride in the voices that you're going to hear as you share the good news of Jesus. So listen, how do we combat someone's pride? Okay, write this down. This is going to help you tremendously in sharing Jesus. Are you ready? You don't. You can't combat someone's pride. You can't convince them. You can't reason with them. You can't win them over. You cannot convince someone they need Jesus. You cannot in your own power convince someone of their need for Jesus. So what do you do? You take a lesson from Philip's answer. What does he say? Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says, come and see. Come and I'll show you. Come with me and you will understand. Now, immediately, if you have been around the evangelical church long, you immediately connect his statement with inviting someone to church or to an evangelistic event, don't you? You heard come and see and you thought invite to church. It, it, it was, you didn't even think about it. It just happened like that. In the church world, we even talk about evangelism terms like going tell and come and see. Almost exclusively we mean inviting someone to church under the heading come and see. But is that what Philip does here? If your only evangelistic strategy is to invite someone to church so they can hear preaching on a Sunday morning, I want you to hear me when I say this out of love, that is a horrible strategy. I don't care how good or bad the preaching is, 
That is not the strategy to evangelize the world. Why? Because that's not what this service is for. In my opinion, the Sunday morning service is for the edification, education, and encouragement of the saints. That's what we find in Scripture. Does that mean a lost person cannot benefit from it? Of course not. Paul says that perhaps an outsider or an unbeliever might even come into our service. And it is by the joint proclamation of the true word that they will see that God is among us and their face and worship. Furthermore, if I could just continue on my soapbox for a minute, it is my opinion when the evangelical church by and large adopted seeker-sensitive models for Sunday morning gathering, they weakened the church, they inadvertently took the responsibility of every Christian to reach the lost and professionalize it by making the pastor's responsibility, you bring them and I'll preach to them. That is not the biblical model. The biblical model is the church gathers and they are encouraged and edified and taught to go out and proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ so that men and women might be saved and then come to church to be edified and encouraged and trained to be sent out. You hear me? Come and see is not a way to advocate or to get away from your responsibility. Come and see. Yes, invite them to church. Tell them we would love for you to experience, but this, listen, this is a better way. What does it mean if come and see doesn't just mean to come to my church? I'm so glad you asked that question. I have an answer for you. Philip's invitation to Nathaniel was to come encounter Jesus for himself, right? So what is an even better model for us to faithfully do the same when people object or have reservations about Jesus? How can we connect them to Jesus? Let's go back to what we said in the first statement about disciples being followers. So how do we, so radically disconnected from the first century Jewish disciples, learn from them in order to obey all that Christ commanded them and be disciples ourselves? We read what they wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and we obey what it says. So what's an even better model for your friend, your coworker, your loved one, your neighbor to encounter Jesus and simply inviting them to church? How about this? I would love for you to join me at church sometime to see what it's like. But in the meantime, why don't you and I read the Gospel of Mark together and we'll meet for coffee or lunch and talk about what it says? Would you rather your friend encounter 45 minutes of preaching or would you rather them spend weeks in the word with you? Which one do you think is more likely to bring them to encounter with Jesus? Come and see is not an invitation to come to church. It's to come and witness what Jesus is doing. So you bring them to the word where Jesus is spoke of and taught and his words are read and you say, hey, read with me. If faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, how much better is come and see by taking them to the Bible than come and see to church on Sunday? Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying don't invite people to church. Don't, don't mishear me. We, we love to people to be invited and to experience them, but that can't be your strategy to win the lost. That can't be our church's strategy to reach White Oak and the surrounding area. All right, I'm, I'm done. But do you see, do you see that what Philip does here is much closer to what I'm describing than simply inviting someone to a gathering of the church? But you say, Pastor, that's so much harder. That's so much harder to do that. That's going to cost me time and energy and effort. Here's where I want to encourage you from our text this morning. Jesus knew Nathaniel before Philip ever found him. Listen to me. It, Jesus knew Nathaniel before Philip went and brought him. As soon as he sees Philip bringing Nathaniel, he says, not only do I know you, 
But I have known you, and I know you better than Philip does. Right? He says, ah, look, here comes an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Philip and Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Whatever was significant about this to Nathaniel, it convinced him that Jesus knew him in a way that was not humanly possible. In the Reformed Expository Commentary, it says, many commentators suggest that Nathaniel might have been praying under the fig tree. Or perhaps he was thinking about all the things he had been hearing about this Messiah or coming Messiah. Maybe he was considering going out and being baptized by John the Baptist. That's John 1.44. We don't know what Nathaniel knew, but he knew in this moment that Jesus knew the inward things of his heart. The same thing happens to us when we come to Christ through his word. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and acting discerning our thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the very thing Jesus did to Nathaniel. Listen, if you bring your heart to Jesus in the manner that Nathaniel came sincerely without deceit, his word will persuade you that he is the very son of God. No matter who you engage with the news of Jesus, listen, you can be sure that not only Jesus already knows them, he knows the inward places of their heart, And only he is powerful enough to penetrate their pride and resistance in order to create new life in them. And if that doesn't encourage you to spread the news of Jesus far and wide, I don't think there is anything that will. Jesus has already gone before you and he knows the people that you're going to engage better than you do. So Philip ran and and found Nathaniel thinking he was the one. And yet Jesus already knew Nathaniel. Jesus was already going to call him to himself. So listen. We think about this story this morning. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Jesus finds Philip, calls him to follow him. Immediately, Philip, in his excitement, went and found Nathanael and brought him to Jesus, who, upon encountering him, at least indicated by his proclamation, fell at his feet in belief that he was the Son of God, and he became a follower of Jesus himself. Thus, Jesus calls two more disciples to himself, who will eventually be called to be apostles, and will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, help establish the church in Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond. This is God's plan to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men through his disciples who follow him and make other disciples who follow him. This is what we find in the New Testament. Confronted with such a simple truth this morning, we have to ask some questions. Am I a disciple? Whatever else I call myself, am I a disciple? Are these things true of me? Am I following Jesus in the sense that he calls disciples to? That is, am I spending time with him in his word, learning from him, becoming more obedient to him as I grow? Does knowing Jesus excite me enough to share him with others the way I share other things in my life? Do I share him without fear of real or imagined opposition? If the answer to any of these is no, Listen, I pray this morning you would repent and turn back to Christ, asking him to strengthen you to better follow him. And if you are here this morning, you do not, and you know that you're not a disciple of Jesus. But through his word this morning, you know that he's creating in you a desire to call out to him, to, to follow him with your life from now on. Listen, I would love to talk to you this morning. Brittany and I are going to be at the front in a moment. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. One last song of praise to our Savior. 
And, and Brittany and I will be the front to counsel, to pray with you if you just need encouragement. If you say, I just need to pray about something, that's what we're here for during this time. Uh, please feel free during this time to come and meet with us anytime. The altar is open. We're going to pray, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing. Let's pray together.